Attention, attention. You are listening to a pre recorded episode of The Curious Realm. Curious Realm is busy traveling the vast void of time and space to find the best paradigm changing content the universe has to offer. Enjoy the following transmission and remember stay curious, curious, curious. Coming to you from the city of the weird. Exploring topics from the esoteric and unexplored to dimensions unknown. Shining a light of truth on the darkest corners of our reality. Welcome to the Curious Realm. Well, hello, everybody. How you doing today? Chris Jordan coming at you in pre-recorded fashion this week. I am out on location in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. I will be here for, well, the next three weeks. Uh, this is, this is a long stint for me here. One of my favorite cities in the country. Fantastic stuff. Great researchers here that we are trying to get a few interviews with as well. We're here covering, uh, the amazing CES show. Uh, full of technology, things like that for my talking sound podcast and working with a couple clients. But as always, as always promised, we do not do replays. We do not do repeat shows, uh, with Curious Realm. We always bring you new content. And with that in mind, our guest in the first segment tonight is the amazing Ryan Edwards. He is author of Cryptids of the World. We will be talking with him about variations and variegations in Sasquatch across North America. Uh, why the, why the descriptions of Sasquatch seem to change so much, uh, regionally and vary so much regionally. Ryan is a fantastic researcher out of the San Antonio area. I met him at Southeast Texas Bigfoot Road Show, I guess uh, about a year and a half ago. And he is one of the upcoming speakers at Falk Monster Festival. He's been on the show before. Welcome back to the show, Ryan Edwards. How you doing, my friend? Doing good, Chris. It's always good to meet you and always good to be on the show. Heck yeah, man. Always great talking with you. I saw the other day on Facebook that you were one of the upcoming scheduled speakers at Falk Monster Fest. And I was like, man, I got, you know, it's been a while since we've had Ryan on. I need to, I need to chat with him, A, to see how it's going, B, to see how his research is coming. And lo and behold, you have a new book that is getting ready to be released through Erie Lights Publishing with uh, David Weatherly, correct? Yes, it's a book I've been working on the past couple of years or so. And I'm finally getting it published right now. It's called uh, Sasquatch, A Prehistory of a Living Legend. It's over, it's a Sasquatch book, but it's a Sasquatch book from a different perspective. Because a lot of people see Sasquatch as a modern phenomena, which of course it is, but... People don't realize that any creature has a natural history. And it comes from somewhere, right? It just doesn't put poof out of nowhere like magic. So I'm talking about, okay, what are the possible origins of Sasquatch? 
and the anatomy, the physiology, the morphology, the behavioral sets that we can speculate on. Of course, sure, it's all speculation. It's one thing I, I say in the book in the beginning. It's like, okay, all this is speculation. None of it do we know if it's true. But through the data sets, sightings, things like that, we can speculate on what this creature is. And Absolutely. For me, I see Sasquatch as a pretty much surviving form of megafauna. If you look at prehistoric North America, which is a spe- kind of a specialty field I have, it, it fits in perfectly alongside American mastodons, giant ground sloths, giant American lions, this giant armadillos. Like, yeah, glyptodons. It would fit in perfectly. So I talk about, okay, if it fits in with North American fauna, when did this creature get here? What did it? What is it? And how how has it survived into the modern day? Yeah. So it's kind of split up into like the prehistoric North America, the ecology of it. Then three major candidates for Sasquatch. Hmm. I talk about Gigantopithecus just because I don't personally believe Giganto is Sasquatch, but of course you got to bring it up. Paranthropus because that's been a modern. A good candidate for Sasquatch and Dryopithecus, a Miocene ape, which for me is the best candidate for Sasquatch. And then I talk about Native American lore, showing that it's been here for thousands of years, a little bit of the anatomy, the behavior set, and ecology of Sasquatch, mm. and how it fits into North America. Well, you know, and you, of course, have to take into account the Native American lore, things like that, because once again, we we see and this this is something interesting that we talked about with uh, Thiago Tecci. Uh, he's he is the lone MUFON field investigator, Ryan, for the entire country of Brazil, one of one of the most populous countries in the world with UFO sightings. And there is an investigator with MUFON one. Um, and when I asked him how many reports came to him from the peoples outside of the city, the, the native populations, things like that. Uh, he said two things. One, we don't get a lot because it's like a good day and a half voyage by a boat, boat one way, you know, to get to San Paulo, uh, where he's at. He's like, but aside from that, when you do, when you go out there and do research, you find out that the reason that they don't come to come to us and every is because it's not an it, it is not an anomaly to them. It's nothing strange to them. So why would they come report it? Why would they yes. come report something that appears in the sky like two three times a week that that they've yeah. talked about in their histories for hundreds of years? You know, things like that. They have no vested interest in reporting that because it's nothing strange to them. Yes. You see? Um, and when you start talking about things like, uh, you know, skinwalkers, you start talking about things like Sasquatch, stuff like that. Th- those are things that the native populations do not assume to be an anomaly. They assume it to be an actual being that they have talked about for hundreds of years that is part of their oral history not just their stories you know not just their myth and lore but part of their actual oral history um and that's something totally different that a lot of people really don't understand ryan is that there there's a vast difference between 
here's a story that we tell around the campfire. And here's a story that we carry on to our children because this is our story. Yeah. Like, I remember one time I, I was talking to my grandfather and he's like, well, one time I saw like a weird looking bug. He said, he was like, he saw like a grasshopper with like bee stripes. And I kind of use that analogy for us. Like, okay, us, us you here in the United States, you see a mm. weird looking bug or something. You're not going to go try to catch it and go tell your local scientist because you just say, okay, it's just, it's a regular thing. It's just part of the natural world. So, to these native groups, it's like the same thing. Okay, if it's a part of our natural world, why go and talk about it? It's like, yeah, if you go see a deer off the highway, you're not going to tell everyone, oh, I saw a deer. It's a part of the natural world. It's just, it's just there. So why talk about it? It's like, it's the same, it's analogous to what they are. It's like, to the Native American groups and a lot of Native groups around the world, these creatures are just another natural being. It's a lot of times seen as like a person. So yeah. usually talking about them, they really don't because there's no need to, or it's seen as a taboo. Yeah, yeah I was going to say it's seen as the fact of, you know, you start talking about them, that, that's when they show up and start looking for somebody to come back with them. Um, and, yeah. and, and, you know, there are, there are caveats, especially in the American Northwest, Alaska, things like that with, with Sasquatch and, and what the, what the, what the natives and locals say, you know, like don't, don't accept salmon from them, you know, don't, don't yeah. accept food from them, uh, don't follow them into the woods, you know, stuff like that. Very, very much oddly, Ryan, um, a lot of the same things that, that you hear about people of the Fae, stuff like that. Yes. You know, the, the people that lived in the woods in, uh, Europe, that kind of stuff, uh, where fairies, gnomes, elves, all that kind of stuff come from. A lot of the same caveats where it's like, be careful getting into conversation with them. You know, um, things like that. So with that being said, let, let's start kind of cracking the nut of, uh, Sasquatch across North America and variances in not only sightings, but in, in what may be, uh, breeds of Sasquatch, so to speak. Yes. Like, I believe in modern, modern times, like, <clears throat> If you're researching Sasquatch, you've probably seen the type chart of like the six or seven types of Sasquatch and it shows like, okay, uh, relic hominoid, chimpanzee like, gorilla like, things like that. I've kind of been interested about that because when some people look at that chart, they see different species, different or subspecies of Sasquatch. Mm -hmm. Which for me, I'm like, okay, first of all, we have to prove the species of Sasquatch exists. Before we even get into if there are subspecies, it's yeah, like, yeah, how, how can we prove one thing without proving the other phenomena? I, so it's like, okay, let's not start get let's not get into the weeds of like, okay, there's subspecies, there's different types, there's this, 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 and that. But with me, I believe, or at least with my research, that there aren't different types of Sasquatch, as in like species, but they're different. What we call ecomorphs. Ecomorphs are when it's the same species. But because of the ecology, they're different. Like, look at gray wolves. The gray wolves up in Alaska are much larger than the ones here in the United States because 
they have more land, there's more larger species. Look at black bears. The black bears yeah. here in the American South are smaller than the ones up in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And that's a prime example because ecologically, at least, black bears and Sasquatch are very similar. Look at Jeff Meldrum's and Cliff Berkman's uh, work. They mm-hmm. talk about the correlation between black bear environments and Sasquatch environments. And if you look at black bears, the ones up in Pacific Northwest are much larger. The ones here in the South are much smaller. And we see the exact same thing with Sasquatch. The Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest are usually eight to nine foot tall, paddy type, if you want to go by that. Yeah. Gorilla-like. Well, the ones here in the South are more chimpanzee-like people I'd describe them as. Like the falc monster, Momo, uh, skunk apes, uh, woolly boogers, all the little colloquial names for the creatures here. They're seen as smaller, usually maybe four, maybe six to seven, maybe eight feet tall, uh, more more violent in nature, usually longer mm. hair. Here you no. usually do get to smell. Now, when like, you say violent in nature, do you mean like... um? More in the realm of like threat display, things like that, kind of yeah. uh, the same way a gorilla would shake trees and, you know, bounce its chest, yeah. things like that. Yeah, more and also more territorial, it appears. Okay. Like, when we look at the story of the Falk monster, Bobby Ford was attacked on his own porch by this creature. Mm. Do you usually get stories like that up in the Pacific Northwest? And it might be because if we look at the here in the American South, the environment is a lot more broken up than like the expanses of the Pacific Northwest. Broken up by towns, rivers, lakes, things like that. So, what if these creatures are more territorial because they just have less territory mm. than what the ones up Pacific Northwest have? So, it's a possibility they aren't more violent because of like any type of weird genetic malfunction because some people state that because in a small environment there might be more genetic less genetic variation which is a possibility but behavioral sets and genetic uh genetic mutations it's hard to see a correlation with at least with humans and primates so if it doesn't occur in humans or primates i wouldn't expect it to occur in sasquatch because that's what they are they are another another primate Mm. But we can't expect them to maybe be more territorial because of less territory. And also, the whole saying, like what Lyle Blackburn always says, in the Legend of Iron Creek, they always follow the creeks. They are primates very attuned to waterways. Like, if you, yeah, if you look at Bigfoot sightings and waterways in North America, they correlate because, of course, these creatures need water. The environment around there, hunting, water, uh, of course, they need a source of water, all that. So, like, up and down the whole Mississippi River Delta, you have hundreds of Sasquatch sightings. And if you look at the Pacific Northwest parts of, like, uh, those riverways up there, like the up in Oregon and down in Northern California, they also have a lot of correlations between waterways and Sasquatch sightings. Heck, The Pacific Northwest is known as the rainforest of, of America. That's right. For a reason, high rainfall. There is a correlation between water and Sasquatch. And if we look at the American South, we see the exact same thing. And it's kind of funny because 
because of these differences, people assume they're different species, but they're just most likely not. They're probably just different variations of the same species, but sure. evolved and adapted for different environments because there is a different environment from here in the, here in the South to, to Pacific Northwest, parts of Canada and Alaska. Like they're just, they're just morphologically a little different because of the different environments. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. And I mean, that, that makes utter sense. You know, mammals do that regularly. And even, even whenever you're talking, um, the possibility of once again, large, mammals that survived uh previous extinctions ice ages things like that like i mean a a prime example i give people not a not a huge mammal but uh definitely a mammal that was there and living with the dinosaurs like the the platypus platypus made it through extinction you know um yeah. there's there's numerous animals that uh we're able to make it through and it I'm not going to say it takes a large breeding population, but uh, whenever you're talking about an animal that can have a, a lifespan of a good 50 years, something like that, possibly um, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty expansive. And we regularly discover species. We didn't, we didn't discover pandas, or lowland gorillas until the last hundred or so years. Yeah. And like when we talk about like, with, uh, especially like with survivors, people don't, people forget that grizzly bears, black bears, bison, elk, all these creatures were lived alongside mat mammoths, uh, smilodons, uh, yeah. American lion less than 10 to 20,000 years ago. So if these species survived, why couldn't a large, intelligent primate as well? Yeah. Like, <clears throat> with me, my hypothesis of the origins of Sasquatch is that it's a Miocene ape known as Dryopithecus that came to North America and evolved alongside the megafaunal species here. Because if you look at, if you look at the, like, environment of Pliocene and Pleistocene North America, you would have stated that it was more like a safari in Africa than a North American than Yellowstone, because mm. the amount of uh, we had proboscideans, uh, elephants, we had camels, we had horses, we had bison, we had antelope, we had all these different species. So you would expect that. How I see it, okay, Pliocene North America is very similar to Africa. Okay. What did Africa have at the time? Apes. And what happened to the apes in Africa during the Pliocene? They became bipedal. They became what we now know as humans. So when people say, oh, Sasquatch is very human-like, I believe, yes, it is. But not necessarily human. Mm. It's kind of convergently evolved to become human-like. Like how dolphins and sharks look similar. How hyenas and wolves are similar. But they're not genetically related. They're in a very same niche so they become ecologically similar. And a similar environment. Yes. Because like with Miocene, like with Dryopithecus, it literally means oak ape. These creatures, these animals lived in oak forests and swamp, swamp lands of Miocene Europe. Their anatomy suggests a 
at least Dryopithecus scenes had a semi uh, bipedal locomotion. They have a very long thorax. Their limb, their their limb proportions are one to point eight. Human limb proportions. Our arms are one to one. Our arms are as long as our legs. Gorillas, it's one to point five. They have much longer arms than legs, suggesting a quadrupedal locomotion. While Dryopithecus is right in between human and ape, just like how Sasquatch is described. And this is one thing that's interesting. When you look at the measurements of Patty, guess what her limb measurements are? One to point eight. The exact mm. the exact limb proportions as Dryopithecus. So it's like, huh, that's interesting, a weird little correlation. But also if you look at uh, the characteristics of like one creature that was a Dryopithecine, which was called Oreopithecus, this creature was known to be an obligate biped about 20 million years ago. So we had a bipedal ape in Europe 20 million years ago. Mm. So why couldn't these creatures have gone into, we now know they're in Asia, and at that time, the Beringia was open during the late Miocene, early Pliocene. So, and at that point, it was very much a lush environment, very similar to like Alaska during the summer. So, both these creatures moved across into North America, and then once the Maya, once the Pliocene boundary occurred, and Beringia got covered by water, these creatures couldn't leave, go back into Europe, so they became either. You evolve or you die. So yeah. these creatures adapted to North America and became what we now know as Sasquatch. Because <clears throat> if we look at the anatomy of Sasquatch, there's always two origins I always say about Sasquatch. Either it's a species that's very much similar to what we now know as Sasquatch that's entered here fairly recently, or it's an animal that came here a lot longer and was very non-similar to Sasquatch and had time to evolve. And according to this, this creature probably entered North America maybe 10 million years ago. And if we look at our own lineage, uh, Homo sapiens, our origins were about maybe 2 to 3 million years ago. So this creature had a lot longer time to evolve in North America yeah. than a lot of other in Africa and, and Asia. Well, and the one thing that I had up on screen a second ago was an abstract from nature about Dryopithecus, and I'll bring that back up. The zygomatic processes derived characters which revealed that Dryopithecus is related to the uh, Pongenae and not to the African apes slash humans as recently discussed. The remaining morphological features are plesiomorphic and thus provide a good model of a common ancestor of all hominidae. Um, all. That, that is important right there. That, that Dryopithecus shows, and just so, just to decode some of that, um, <laughs> the, the zygomatic process, everybody, is right back here. That, uh, I mean, if you feel the hard part right here in between your ears and the top of your jaw, that's your zygomatic process. Um, I only know that because I have implants back there that they had to make specifically long enough to hit my zygomatic process. Um, <laughs> so, uh, to know that that part right there, that mandibular part of our skull 
and uh, which once again is a huge part of the morphology of how something evolves. Uh, it has to do with its diet. It has to do with the strength of its mandibles and what it's eating uh, in its diet, all kinds of things uh, to, to show once again, that Dryopithecus of all species shows to be a good model of a common ancestor of all hominidae. And that's, that's, us, that's Sasquatch, that's anything hominid. So pretty, pretty interesting yeah. to see that. And like, and recent genetic uh, studies have shown that they are direct relations to pongonoid or what we now know as uh, orangutans, and also they're very gorilla-like. So they're also possibly a, a ancestor to gorillas. And when people describe Sasquatch, what is the one ape they always describe it looking like? gorillas yep so there is a lot of correlation between these two creatures like for instance their jaws they were very gracile because when people think of sasquatch they think okay this creature has to be robust very strong but technically if you look at the ecology of this creature it has to have more of a gracile like jaw mm. uh something that can feed on meats fruits leaves and <clears throat> the jawline of, of Dryopithecus is very similar to that. It probably ate fruits, uh, nuts, uh, things off of like trees, and some have suggested possibly uh, omnivore and ate maybe some some uh, small animals, things like that, because that's what we see in modern chimps. Modern yeah. chimps eat monkeys and other meat and other meat, and it's a possibility that these creatures once entered North America, evolved to become more omnivorous, a little bit more carnivorous because of the large amount of prey found in North America. We see sure. Sasquatch hunting, supposedly elk, deer, things like that. Now, now, I, 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 I would, I would gladly say, and this is just me, behavioral science wise, animal wise, things like that. You are hard pressed to find a bear hunting down an elk. Um, yeah. and, and you don't, you don't see things like that. You don't see a cougar hunting down an elk, that kind of stuff, because there, there is a great chance of injury. Um, even, even when it comes to reptiles, like I'm, I'm a huge herpophile. I love reptiles and amphibians, but even snakes will be wary of the size rat they take on because of their chance of injury. Um, and you also have to wonder, what would something that large be expending the amount of energy it takes to stalk? Because uh, most stalking animals like that stalk in groups. You yes. know, um, there, there are lone cats, things like that, but they normally stalk prey smaller than themselves. You know, um, there's normally stalking smaller prey. Uh, but I, I've, I've always had an issue with, with that characterization of like, Oh, look at what it did to this deer. Now, will, will it much like a bear gladly help itself to venison that's laying on the ground? You're darn tootin'. Yes. I think it would gladly go up and help itself to any meat. Like, will it catch a squirrel? Will it catch a rabbit? Something like that? Absolutely. Um, but I don't, I don't know that a large grazing species 
like that would be going through the effort to hunt down large game. That's just yeah. that's just my formed opinion. I'm not even going to say educated opinion. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> just just from hunting and know, knowing what I do about wildlife, things like that, and just the the fact that most stalking animals don't stalk something that has a propensity of true danger to them. You know, yeah. um, animals aren't stupid. And, and it's, it's funny because there, there seem to be a lot more reports of this going on out there, Ryan, of, you know, yeah. um, look, at, look at how it broke this deer's back, you know, things like that. And it's like, I, I'm, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Um, and once again, all of this is, uh, hypothesis, every bit of it. My, that is my favorite thing about it is that, we do get to hypothesize. We do get to consider what the other options are out there. Um, it's, it, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about the, the big game thing. I've just, I've heard it in numerous conversations. I've seen it in numerous threads and it's like, um, is there, is there a preponderance of evidence out there to suggest that, Ryan? As far as sightings and things like that, I know, I know that the stories are out there most definitely. Yeah. Like, there's some possible evidence. Like, there are stories of people that have Sasquatch live on their property. Like, which is a hard part because sometimes when it comes to the whole Sasquatch living on properties for a long time, I can have issues with that because a lot of times when you look at these people, it's for the evidence that having Sasquatch, it's very loose. It's mostly just their stories. <clears throat> but a lot of times they describe these creatures chasing down deer and breaking the back limbs or breaking the back leg in order to make sure the deer doesn't run off. Yeah. There's a lot of stories about that. And also, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a video on Yellowstone, I believe, of like, a herd of bison, and then you see four large figures in the background, bipedal figures. And when huh. you do the when you do the measurements and all that, I think uh, Tinker Dunker worked on this. The, the figures are like eight feet tall and bipedal. And you're like, okay, that's weird. That's not a human. And it looks like they're almost hunting the. They're at least stalking these bison. And it's like, okay, I could possibly see something like that occurring, but. And not a lone creature, of course not, because like what you said, the risk of getting hurt, like yeah, that's why I always have, always have issues with like a lot of animal documentaries, dinosaur documentaries, because they show these animals fighting all the time. Yeah, the, nature doesn't look like that. Predators. Mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's, if it's I'm going to get hurt, I'm not going to I'm not going to do anything. There may be a head to head competition for female. There may be a head to head competition for food rights or water rights in a territory or nesting rights, um, or even just to say like, dude, you look like a prick. You know, yeah. um, and, and they challenge each other. Uh, but yeah, they it's not like, oh, these two things are going to fight it out just for the heck of it. Like, no, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not times, how it works. And a lot of times those fights don't even get into, into combat. They they show off who's bigger and the other one walks away. That's Because right. they know if I get in the fight, I can break a limb and boom, I can't hunt. I'm going to die. Yeah. So it's like animals are a lot smarter than what people think. And it's like, okay. 
fighting all the time and the whole violent nature. No, animals aren't like that. Like a lot of times bears and wolves, when a bear comes onto a wolf kill, the wolves walk away because, okay, if I get hurt by this bear, I can't hunt. Yeah. Let's just walk away. Well, you're no good to the pack. And if you're no good to the pack, then, well, have fun, lone wolf. Hope you make it through yeah. the winter. You know, um, yeah. quite literally, that's what happens. And, uh, you, you know, they they leave the lame ones behind. They don't care for them. Um, that that's in every herd or pack animal to to yes. be that way. Um, it is literal survival of the fittest. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there's and, you know, even when you're getting into the fact of um, B- Bigfoot going out and um, raiding people's stuff, things, things like that uh, coming into camps. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've even been wary about now. I know that there are like no light trail cams, stuff like that, you yeah. know, that, that have just extremely low light sensors and they do not use infrared light. Um, but even using infrared light, things like that out in the middle of the woods at night to find a nocturnal animal, like, you realize that infrared light is literally like a spotlight to them because they can, they can see into that near infrared range, you know? Um, so yeah, like that's how they're able to see at night is because of that. So yeah, I've, uh, there are a few things that have always squirreled me out when it comes to, uh, investigation and things like that. Uh, cause once again, um, that, that's the one thing that I love about you is that you, uh, you keep things in a very common sense point of view, Ryan. Um, and, and saying that, yes, these things very well can be, but, but let's rein things in and let's focus on what is provable, not only statistically, but probability wise, you know, yes. um, what the, what the chain of events possibly was to lead to this species and or species um and even even to the variations that exist because once again uh when you start getting into bears stuff like that um black bears range across the united states and the ones in the north northeast northwest where they have harder winters um are much bigger than the ones that we have here in texas and for a long time, black bears were endangered. Some people thought that black bears were even like gone from the state yeah. of Texas. Um, but they are on the rise, on the rise so much that, uh, San Antonio recently put out alerts for hikers and things like yeah. that. You know, that be, be careful. Black bears are out and they're real and they're a thing. Um, and they are yeah. coming back in larger numbers. You know, um, yep. they are no longer on the state endangered list. Uh, and even, even when you start looking at the black bear sightings in Texas and things like that, uh, where they are starting to pop up again in East Texas and everything else seem to be where a lot of Bigfoot sightings are, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and if you grew up somewhere, especially where, Black bear were not common, you know, um, black bear weren't anything like when I was brought up hunting and things like that, Ryan, we were, we worried about pigs on the trail, yes. 
We worried about wild hogs and running into them. We didn't really worry about running into a random bear in the woods like you do in Maine, where I lived for yeah. five, six years. You know, like that that's a place where if you're wandering around in the woods, be careful for a bear. Um, you didn't really have to worry about that in Texas. So to know that black bear are on the bounce back, um enough to be coming off the endangered species list in the state. To know that they're coming back in the same areas that sightings tend to be happening. Now, I'm not saying that the sightings are not Sasquatch. I'm not saying that they're bears. What I'm saying is that there tends to be a correlation here, or seems to be a correlation here, between one sighting going up and the presence of the other, which people are not necessarily used to seeing. Even experienced hunters aren't used to seeing a black bear because they haven't been out there in huge numbers. Yes. You know? Like, yeah. And like, and it's like the kind of like what you brought up, the common sense of this, of this field that a lot of people mm. not lack, but sometimes don't really look at it. Cause like, <clears throat> that's an issue I've actually been coming along with my third book I've been working mm. on. Cause right now I'm working on a kind of an, Kind of like a Sasquatch book, but talking about the other unknown primates seen here in North America, like sure. people see devil people see devil monkeys, the North American ape phenomenon, where people see almost chimpanzee-like creatures, the gugweed, things like that. And it's an issue because I'm coming along it. I'm like, okay, all these creatures are seen right where Sasquatch are, but that's ecologically not possible. It's like okay. Proving that there's one unknown unknown primate in North America is hard enough. Now you're saying there's three or four other types of primates seen here in North America. Just logically doesn't make sense. But then when you look at the evidence, you're like, okay, there's some evidence for these creatures. But then, like, that's the thing that I always bring up with cryptozoology is the ecology of cryptozoology. Mm. Like, okay. People that say they have Sasquatch on their on their land say, "Okay, I see Sasquatch, I see Dogman, I see Gugri, I see Black Panthers, I see this, I see that." And it's like ecologically, that's not possible. Like you only have areas where there's bears and wolves and cougars. Now you want to add two or three other large major predators. Just it doesn't it doesn't work out. Like when people bring up that they see Dogman and and Bigfoot in the same area. Doesn't it, there's something called niche differentiation where two di animals don't show share the same niche, but they might share it at different times of the year. Like one during the winter might be Sasquatch, during the summer might be maybe dog man, something like that. But mm. a lot of times people don't look at it logically, and it just doesn't make sense from a biological perspective. Sure, that's why. Like with this book, it's so hard because I'm like, okay, Sasquatch easily proven. But then you talk about all these other unknown primates seen here in North America, which there is evidence for them, yes. But ecologically, it's harder to do the research because they just don't fit in ecologically into North America as well as Sasquatch. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, let, let's start getting into some of those variations, specifically regionally and and how those regions differ. Uh, and how that might re lead to the different morphologies of the same species in different variations. 
Yes, of course. Like when the one sitting up in Pacific Northwest, the paddy types, more gorilla-like, more robust, bigger, heavy, larger muscles, things like that. If you look at the passing game of film, that's kind of basic Sasquatch seeing up in the Pacific Northwest. <clears throat> well, if you come down here in the South, creatures like the Falcon <coughs> Monster, Momo, they'll see this more chimpanzee-like, more a little less robust, more closer to... Also, one thing that's seen a lot here in the South is swimming. Uh, a lot of these animals are seen as being able to swim, like across rivers, things like that. You see that in the Pacific Northwest, but, not as, but it's not as common, which makes sense biologically because we have more river systems here, and they are more broken up. Like, you have the whole Mississippi River Delta, and the bottomlands and all that here in, here in the south would make these creatures more uh, more able to swim or more likely more readily do it okay and you have them seeing being smaller here in the south like the the, for the, the main example I use is the falc monster the legend of Bog creek it's seen as maybe about maybe seven to eight feet tall the ones in the Pacific Northwest are seen are like nine to nine feet tall at the largest, which also makes sense because of the broken environment we have here in the South. It's not the expansive woodland as the Pacific Northwest and Alaska and Canada. Yeah. So a smaller environment will cause these creatures to become smaller. And even uh, if you look at the footprint finds of Sasquatch, the ones up in the, uh, up ones up in the Pacific Northwest are larger, usually 18, 19 inches long. Model ones in the South are maybe 16, 15 inches long, which that also goes with a biological process known as Bergman's Law. Bergman's Law states animals in higher latitudes are larger than the ones in lower latitudes. Hmm. Look at bears. Polar bears, highest latitudes, largest bears. Grizzlies, middle latitudes, Larger than, uh, smaller than polar bears, but larger than black bears. Black bears are in a lower latitude and are one of the smallest bears in North America. Hmm. (coughs) The smallest bear in America, in the Americas, is a spectacled bear. And that's seen in South America, even lower latitudes. So we see this correlation between Sasquatch and their footprint finds, and also sightings. So that can also explain why the ones here in the South are smaller. Mm. Also, we have a history of sightings. You have uh, sightings of like the gorillas that go back hundreds of years in newspapers. People saw saw they saw gorillas and chimpanzees, but before that, they talk about wild men and uh, people living in the forest because it's the cultural aspect. If once we knew about gorillas, people referred to Sasquatch as gorillas. Before we knew about gorillas, they reference them as wild men because that's mm. what we have in our minds. We can't describe them as a gorilla if we don't know what a gorilla is. Sure. So, we have those stories that go back hundreds of years here in the South. We have along the Sabine River and in, in, uh, parts of East Texas, you have stories of these creatures like the Sabine Ding. The, you have people reference they, they describe it as almost like a wild Indian back in the day in the 1800s that was covered with hair that would go and loot people's houses and be seen crossing roads, things like that, which we now know as Sasquatch. 
you have the skunk ape in America, uh, Florida and parts of like Louisiana. Like people describe this creatures reddish hair, chimpanzee-like, longer fur than the ones up in the Pacific Northwest, which might be more helpful towards mosquitoes and uh, a lot of like the biting insects we have here in the South. And the behavior sets are different too. They, these creatures are seen as more solitary as the ones up in the Pacific Northwest. You have less track finds of groups than you see up in the Pacific Northwest. They're seen as more, like what we said earlier, not violent, but more territorial here in the South. Mm. And an interesting thing I've come upon with my research and my research for my third book is that there might be another unknown ape seen here in the South that might be misidentified as Sasquatch. Really? Back in the 60s, Lauren Coleman and Mark Hall called an animal called a nape. <clears throat> These are North American apes. And what makes them different from Sasquatch is their footprint finds. When people reference nape fo- uh, footprints, they look like this. It's a long human foot, but with a divergent big thumb, almost like modern gorillas and chimps. Mm. And that's it. That's interesting because uh, for the longest time, I was like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. Why would it have a human-like foot but then an divergent big thumb? But earlier, when we referenced the Dryopithecus species, Oreopithecus, its foot looked exactly like that. A long human-like foot with a divergent big thumb. And it's like, okay, that's interesting. Like a Dryopithecus, a Dryopithecine species had a footprint very similar to one found here in North America, but just a little bit smaller. So there might be another species of unknown apes seen here in North America, here in the South, that's more anthropoid-like. People describe them as more giant chimpanzees almost. Uh, There's stories of people finding footprints that they describe looking like a human hand, like because it has a divergent big thumb, which is not what we see in Sasquatch at all. But morphologically, they're also very similar because they're seen as obligate bipeds. They're primarily bipeds, but they they are arboreal. They go up in trees. They can climb trees. They can do what we call brachiating, which brachiating is like carrying from one limb to another with your arms, like how we do on like a, a jungle gym or monkey bars. That's what what brachiating is. And with Sasquatch, the limb proportions don't support that. Unless there are stories of younger Sasquatch mm. climbing trees and breaking between branches, which is possible. Of course, because they're smaller. But with these North American apes, it's seen animals six foot tall doing this. So it suggests maybe another species of primate, which with me, I've speculated on, okay, what is this? This could be an offshoot of Dryopithecus. That if, let's just say... Sasquatch is Dryopithecus. This is all just speculation. And once it entered North America, some of it found a uh, environment very similar to the one it came from. So why would it need to evolve into what we now know as Sasquatch? One's evolved into Sasquatch, a more prairie, open land, biped, like what we now see as modern-day Sasquatch. And one became a arboreal swampland living creature that became what we now know as North American apes that have a, a foot very similar to modern day Oreopithecus. Mm. So it's a possibility because their behavior sets are also very similar. 
maybe not the same species, but maybe offshoots of a same common common ancestor. Sure. Like how we said earlier that all hominidae are origin from Dryopithecus itself. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, once again, bringing that up on screen, just the idea that there is a common species that seems to be a perfect springboard for all hominid species. Um, and to, to think of that species surviving or, um, relatives of that species surviving, what do you think the odds are for that? Ryan, do you think that that is a possibility? I think it's a possibility and high, high, not high probability, but high, but it's probable because of the correlations between Sasquatch and this unknown and Dryopithecus. Mm-hmm. If you look at apes, the one big thing I have kind of against it is just how apes aren't very migratory. They don't move around a lot. Yeah. But if you look at the Dryopithecus, at least Dryopithecines, the genera of what Dryopithecus latifrons was found in, they were all around the world almost. They were in Asia, parts of Africa, parts of uh, Europe. So it showed that this creature moved around a lot, and it's a possibility that maybe during the time of Beringia, some did move over into North America. Mm. And that's how we have primates here, because people don't realize that we did have primates indigenous to North America, but those were very basic primates, very like uh, what we kind of call aplesiodapiforms, what's like lemurs, slow slow losses, those types of creatures. But those were extinct here in North America about maybe more than 20 million years ago. Yeah. And there was a ghost lineage almost. We don't know where they came. They, we don't know where they went. They just kind of died out. So most likely if there's a primate here in North America, it didn't evolve here. It came from somewhere else. So the possibility of a dryopithecine surviving into the modern day and being known as what we now know as Sasquatch is highly probable because what we see, when, when people always bring up like the lack of fossil evidence and there's no evidence for this, there's no physical proof, which it is true, yes, but mm. we now we know the primate fossil record is nowhere near complete. That's the, right. The best primate yeah, the best primatologists in the world will say we only know maybe 6 to 10% of primate, of all primate uh, fossils. There's a, a saying around paleoanthropology that says all proof of human evolution can fit in a shoebox, like all the bones and everything. So oh, yeah. a lack of fossil record, that's kind of what would be expected with a primate. Like there's plenty of times what we call ghost lineages, like the lemurs in Madagascar. There's some species that just kind of came out of nowhere. And it's a ghost lineage because we have no evidence of proof of where they came from. Yeah. So, uh, primate here in North America, we would expect it being a, what we call a ghost lineage as well because there wouldn't be a lot of proof. There wouldn't be a lot of like evidence because I don't see Sasquatch walking into tar pits or anything like that. And also... If these creatures did come from Beringia, Beringia is covered in the Bering Sea right now. So not like we could find evidence of that there. And Alaska and Canada, a lot of it was covered up by what we call the Laurentide Ice Sheet, one giant piece of a glacier. So you wouldn't find any fossil evidence there. And the Pacific Northwest is very 
not not inclusive to fossils because of the high acidic soil, the highly the high yeah. amount of rainfall. So we really wouldn't expect any evidence of uh, like origins of Sasquatch in North America, North America, because we're just not inclusive to to fossils, especially mm. primate fossils. But I can just only imagine if 10, 20 years down the line, if someone finds a fossil of a primate that's maybe 20, maybe 5 million years old, they're like, okay, that's interesting. Where did that come from? Yeah. Like, the most yeah. recent, the most recent primate in North America is an animal called Panamacetus. It was found in Panama before North America and South America connected. And this animal came out of nowhere. The last known primate from Panamacetus was 5 million years older than mm. this. So, like, okay, we have a primate here in North America that just kind of came out of nowhere. So, why couldn't a modern Sasquatch or Napes or even what yeah. people see the devil monkey? Why couldn't these kind of just come out of nowhere because there's no fossil evidence for them? Yeah. Yeah, and and quite literally the fact of uh, when when it comes to fossil evidence, just to bring it back to the the lineage of mankind. There's a reason why I want to know why it's called the theory of evolution when when we still pretty close to hypothesis on that end. You know, um even even the most quote intact skeleton that we have uh, would be Lucy. Um, yes. And, and this, this is an incredible rendering of Lucy, by the way. Um, really awesome. Uh, let, let's scroll down through then. This is off natural, nat, the natural, natural history museum. Um, uh, you can come down here and actually see the bones that they found. Here's an actual casting. Yes. So, once again, that was a lot of cranial detail. That that was uh, a, a lot of facial detail, a lot of detail. Period to be coming off of that skeleton that has zero face, zero brow. Um, it does have a complete jawline, which is nice. Yeah. Um, you know, and if if you've got the the uh zygomatic you can at least from there figure out partial yes. skull size things like that yeah. um but but once again a pretty incomplete skeleton to to be making the leap so to speak um which is a leap it's it's a leap i'm 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 no creationist Ryan you know this as yeah. does my audience however um when it comes to saying that, uh, like, teaching the theory of evolution as anything but a theory, I have problems because that's not science. And yeah. and when when saying like, how do you know Sasquatch exists? Because we don't we don't have any fossils or intact skeletons. We ain't got any full fossils or intact skeletons of these others either. We have some bits yeah. and pieces and stuff like that, but nothing to show a direct lineage 
things like that. So I consider that work just as incomplete as the work on Sasquatch. The only difference is we have numerous modern castings of footprints. Uh, we, we have numerous things like handprints, new things like hand oils, facial oils, things like that that we're going to get to examine. So, um, I, I, I am a believer in the hominid species of North America and beyond. Um, I, I believe that there is one. I don't think it would take a huge breeding population, you know. Um, you just have to know about the breeding population and, and follow things. That's all. Yeah. Like, and that's thing too, like with like human evolution and all and origins, like a lot of times, if you look at skulls of like skull of Homo erectus, skull mm -hmm. of Homo ergaster, you'll see a lot of places where we had like fill in the gaps. Yeah. Like Lucy, like, of course, there's no face there, so we took faces off of other Australopithecines afarensis yeah. and speculated on what they would look like. Yeah. Because it's not really speculation, it's highly educated guests. Sure. It's because we are taking measurements and things like that. Like, there are certain measurements with humans and primates that we can measure on. Like, like you've seen what I always bring to my conferences, I bring a Gigantopithecus skull. Well, skull, because... Everything that's not that jawline has not been discovered off Gigantopithecus. So, Grover Krantz, Dr. Grover Krantz, speculated on what the rest of the skull would look like. But if the modern day researchers think the Giganto skull wouldn't look the way mine looks, because it's very more gorilla like, less pongonoid like, because DNA has shown that these creatures were more related to pongonoids, uh, orangutans. So, also, they probably won't bipedal as well. They'll probably be quadrupeds. So, a lot of times with these skulls, we have to kind of speculate on what they would look like. Like, it is a highly educated speculation, yes. It's, it is scientifically proven. It's not just really a guess. But sure. it truly is just kind of still speculating. Like, we take measurements, things like that. Like, <clears throat> I'm not a paleoanthropologist. So I can't really see it from their perspective, but <clears throat> I know it's not just like, okay, let's just make stuff up. No, which no, no, people, no, absolutely. Yeah, which I know some people that are like against the whole scientific aspect, like, oh, well, it's just guessing. Which like, no, yeah. no, no, there's, oh. nah, there's science to this, of course, yeah. and that's what we're doing with Sasquatch, because some people have issues with like people like me that like try to speculate on what this creature is, but it's like, well, why not? It's the job like, of science. People, like, some people are like, well, we don't have any evidence, so why should we have an idea for what, where they came from? And I'm like, well, because we have to – everything has an origin point. So why not speculate on the origins of these creatures, which is honestly something I really don't see yeah. happen a lot any, anymore. There's, there's zero evidence that matter is solid. Yeah. Zero. Like, I, I, yep. would, I would like to see the equation that shows me that this desk is a solid object and not just a repulsion of electrons by everything that we know to be physics. Um, yes. We call it a solid object, but, you know, um, by everything else that we know to be actual science, it's far from solid. 
Um, and, and that's the interesting thing is that say so, yeah, the day you say science is complete, it's, it's no longer science. Yes. You know, um, it, it is science is forever evolving, forever changing. Um, and yeah, yeah, I, I am a, yeah. I'm a big believer in the fact of we will get an answer. It will happen. Um, yeah, but like, and that's also kind of interesting fact too, is that like, one thing I've kind of come upon recently with this research is kind of the changing face of cryptozoology as well, because mm. as at least with me, I've noticed there's a kind of a lack of research anymore. A lot of people go after the more storytelling, telling eyewitness accounts and all that, yeah. but not a lot of people really do like, okay, what are these creatures? What are the origins yeah. of cryptids? Like you read any Bigfoot book, it's going to be mostly sightings not a lot of like okay it might be gigantopithecus and then that's it yeah like well i'll give you this one yes chris oh no i was gonna say to me i have a problem with anybody that that has a problem with somebody whose field of study is cryptozoology because at the same token you may as well get into it with anybody whose whose field of study is quantum physics an utterly theoretical science utterly theoretical yeah you know um there are there are people whose entire world and work is nothing but theory and hypothesis ryan and without them we would not have the advancements we have yeah so it's it's, one of the most uh, important things out there yeah like with this book my my second book it is a lot of speculation but a lot of it is science is science based i don't have maybe one or two stories of Sasquatch sightings because yes, that is interesting. It is data, but I want to go after the more like meat and potatoes of it. You might say mm. like my forward is written by Ken Gerhardt himself. And Ken was like, no, he's like, he's like, we are missing books like this out of the field because that's right. We, we need that research. We need that re- the research in this study. A lot of people want to write a book about, Oh, nothing but Bigfoot sightings, which is, it is fun. Yes. But it's not the research we really need. Like, yeah, we have all these stories, but who's going to look at the stories and like, okay, speculate? Okay, that's a that's a cool behavior. That's a cool behavior. Put it all in maybe like, like what we brought up before AI. Put all the signs in AI. See what that's right. Uh, what things we can speculate on migratory routes? Where are they seen? Are there more than maybe? Maybe it's the same creature getting seen in the same areas. Yeah, like what can we find? out from that type of research yeah yeah exactly because you can you can once you start feeding that data in um specifically regionally seasonally everything else man that's how you come up with migratory pads that's how you start seeing which rivers they're following during which parts of the year and everything else um same way as with elk and uh, you know uh Citizen science wise, man, the thing I always recommend people do, I was talking about this with Chester Moore just the other day. Um, If you're out there with trail cams, if you're out there Bigfoot hunting, Sasquatching, all that kind of stuff, folks, looking for the Jersey Devil, I don't care. Get a hold of your local university. Let them know. Like, guaranteed, there's a biology department, something like that, who would love that footage they they can't they don't have time to get out there they don't have funding 
to get out there. Yeah. But you could be helping citizen science-wise with so much conservation effort, things like that. And without this data, they can't get the conservation of the space, which then leads yes. to the disconservation of the animals that live in the space. Yeah, like that's kind of like when, like the summary, like the ending of my second book. It's kind of a call to arms because mm. look at how many species of primate have gone extinct. Yeah, look, it's literally titled prehistory of uh, Sasquatch prehistory. All these giant megafaunal species have gone extinct. And so it could be because of environmental changes, humans, it's a mixture of both. So when modern Sasquatch research, I see is very important because the next hundred years or so, if we don't prove this, pre this species is real, it could be just another example of megafaunal extinction. Like we have to prove this species is real in order to protect it. Like Marion County, uh, in where Jefferson is in Texas just had a law passed that said if you shoot a Bigfoot into like that, it's illegal. They're protecting a species yeah. that isn't proven to be real yet. And that's honestly what we need to do is because if the species is out there, we do need to protect it because it might be one of our closest living relatives even. Even if it's not human, it is very human-like. And that's something we can learn from. And like, there's kind of a podcast episode I've always wanted to do with a couple of the researchers of, like, okay, Sasquatch after discovery. What will we do after this creature was discovered? What type of laws, what type of things will we do after this creature was discovered? Well, let's just say if it's proven to be human, non-human, what will we do next? What would the lit litigation be? What would the legal actions be? Yeah. That's kind of an interesting conversation right there, I believe, of, like, what would happen if we proved this creature existed? Oh, absolutely, because those efforts do not happen overnight, Ryan. Yeah. Conservation efforts, putting land aside, passing bills, th those things don't just occur. Yeah. So once again, and people like Craig Woolheater putting that out there and having that passed, um, helps further that effort before it's even on radar. Yeah. And it's also kind of an interesting topic, too. Like, let's just say Sasquatch was discovered tomorrow. Yep. Who would be researching us cryptozoologists that have done this for years? Or would primatologists come in and be like, okay, no, we have this taken care of now. We, we know it's a real species. Let's go research it. Yeah. Who would be in charge of researching these species? The people that have been doing it for years that are seen as kooks and, and, and like, uh, crack pipes, or would the primatologists come in and finally say, "Okay, what a yeah. scientist we got them"? What, like, what, who, who or would they now? Or would they now be the kooks? Because that's yeah. kind of the situation that NASA's up against, and and what the head of the NASA UFO UAP panel directly said was like, "We as scientists, as NASA, have been woefully disregarding our job. Our job is to yeah. look into anomalies." The job of science is the anomalous. It's there yes. to explain the anomalous. So when you're subtracting the anomaly, like you're not doing real science. You are now carving out the data for your intended ends. If you're subtracting anomaly from your data set. 
Um, so that's not real science. I'm sorry to tell anybody out there who's practicing science in such a way. You are culling your data. And, yeah. and that's, that's exactly what they said had been happening. That is exactly what they said is wrong. Um, they were like, because it has been in the box of UFO for so long, uh, and, and we ridiculed people for looking into UFOs, we never actively did any work or study on it. And it apparently needs to be studied. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I posit the other thing. Should, should, a North American wood ape be found. Um, every single scientist that's out there that said like, like, like my, uh, like my ex's brother, uh, from Maine, who was a anthropology teacher and, and taught, you know, like scientific anthropology and things like that. And was always like, there is no Sasquatch. That's, that's crazy talk. You're a crazy person. Like, you know, who's not allowed to teach about Sasquatch? You. Yeah. <laughs> the one who said it wasn't there. Um without using any means of science to prove it wasn't there. Yeah. You know, um yeah, anybody who spread that doctrine, I would say you're not allowed to research it. <laughs> yeah. Like what Carl Sagan said, evidence absence is not uh, lack of evidence is not evidence absence. That's right. That's right. Being there doesn't necessarily prove it's not there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and you know, um, because of good people like you, Ryan, uh, this field will be furthered. Um, once again, the the conversation of the real conversation behind these things, uh, behind conservation for the right purposes, behind uh, researching things in the right way, making sure that. Uh, we follow the actual trails, not only of, of, uh, evidence, but accounts in the right yeah. and proper ways, like you're saying. Um, all hugely important, man. Thank you so much for your time as always coming on and really just deep diving into this stuff headlong. You're, you're like me. You like just diving right in. Um, so it's, it's always awesome having conversation with you on air and off air. Uh, let everybody know where they can go, of course, to pick up the new book. Do you have a release date yet? Release date? I do not have it from, uh, David Weatherly yet. I will be contacting him pretty soon to see what the release date is. I have the artwork, all that done because pre, uh, artwork's done by Jason McLean. Awesome. The, uh, I have a pre, I have a forward written by Ken Gerhard. Oh, that's been submitted. Uh, it'll probably be done hopefully by January. As soon as the release date is uh, given, I'll, of course, I'll tell you, Chris. But if you want to get my first book, Crypto to the World, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes Noble, uh, as you can see right here. Uh, you can get it from uh, Pat Price Books. If you think if you think of a bookstore, it probably has it. Awesome. And the second book is going to be titled Sasquatch, A Prehistory of a Living Legend. As soon as I have a release date for it, I will be giving it to you, Chris, and you can put it out there and do Can't whatever wait. you want to do with it. I cannot wait, man. Um, I am so looking forward to that book and having you on to talk about it. I always love talking about your research. Once again, you come at things with such a level head um, and with such a such a right scientific mind behind it, Ryan. So. I'm greatly looking forward to that release. Thank you so much for all your time 
as always. Of course. Uh, hold the line real quick while we close things out. Um, while you are online getting your copy of Cryptids of the World, uh, make sure to stop on by CuriousRealm.com forward slash store. That is where you can find the link to Cryptids of the World and purchase your copy, folks. CuriousRealm.com is also where you can go to follow all of our guest YouTubes and our YouTube and uh, see all kinds of great content. Uh, make sure to like, follow, subscribe, share, comment, all that kind of good stuff, everybody. Remember, the conversation is what moves humanity forward, and the conversation does not happen without your open hearts and your open minds. Everybody and welcome back from that commercial break. Thank you so much to our sponsors, especially WebWorks Wireless. WebWorks Wireless is your home for no credit check, no throttling, high-speed internet for all. They are our source for our live streams every week. Whenever you see us live on our website, that is brought to you by WebWorks Wireless and their amazing router that sits right here next to me at my desk. Stop on by and check them out, everybody. WebWorksWireless.com is the website. Our guest in this segment is the amazing Richard B. Spence. He has come on before. Uh, he has an amazing series of courses on what is now called Wondrium. It was at one point called just The Great Courses. Now it is Wondrium by The Great Courses. Uh, he has come on before talking about his Secret Societies class, which is awesome. Uh, but I ran across his class the other day, Secrets of the Occult. And I was like, man, I have been wanting to talk about the occult for so long on this show. And as you guys know, uh, I prefer talking like instead of just getting together with somebody and talking and talking. I'd prefer to talk to somebody who's actually researched. Uh, Richard B. Spence is also the author of Secret Agent 666, Alistair Crowley and his involvement with British intelligence. Uh, welcome back to the show. Professor Spence, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, and thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming back. I was very excited to see your Secrets of the Occult class, because uh, and you spend, as you typically do in the first uh, episode of a course, the first, the first hour of lecture, uh, going through and really demystifying what occult means. So many people have have uh, just a Kleenex understanding, you know, of so many of these topics, whether it be paranormal, whether it be, you know, uh, paragovernmental and, and para-intelligentsia, uh, UFOs, UAPs, it, everything gets thrown into a catch-all box, it seems like. And when it comes to occult... And what a cult is, it's very much the same way, correct? Well, it's it's a word uh, which which takes on different meanings in, in in different places. And so, one of the things that I always want to do uh, in, in the secret society course 
for instance, um, I wanted to start out by defining what we're talking about. All right. So we're talking about a secret society. Well, what is it? And or at least I'll establish what my definition of it is. So as we go on to this conversation, we'll be we'll be referring back to the same thing. And very true with a cult. Um, you know, the, the term that is generally, you know, what a cult is commonly synonymous with is, uh, well, at the very least, something which is creepy and spooky, uh, or if not outright diabolical. Mm. Right. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a sort of, it's like, you know, Satanism, the occult, somehow those, those kind of blend together and they're the same thing. Uh, they can be, <laughs> okay, uh, one can say, but, but a cult is a much larger term, which really just means hidden, something which is hidden, something which is disguised. And, and in particular, I think if you take the Latin back at its meaning, something which is hidden from sight, which, which you cannot see. And and what's hidden, really, at, at the root of this concept of the occult, the hidden, is a, is a hidden world. Uh, or, you know, you can think about it in different terms, uh, hidden dimensions. Um, but, but the concept really comes down to the idea that the, the world of our senses – the phenomenal world that we as human beings experience through our senses is only part of a much broader one or a much more complicated one, which is full of all kinds of things that we can't see or hear or touch or smell, but which we may be able to sense in other ways, but which may also, even if we're not aware of it, aware of, of uh, it, it may be aware of us. And that's what lies at the root of, of what are called occult doctrines, uh, and that lies at the root of, uh, of certainly of everything that falls within religion. Because, and here, here is a, a controversial idea I'm going to throw out, what, is, what we refer to as religion, in just about any of its forms, is a manifestation of the occult. Sure. Yeah, I mean, as as an altar server, as somebody who studied to be a Catholic priest, and I, I I meant to have my copy of the Roman Ritual right here so that I could turn it around and show where it actively says invocation of. Uh, no, no different than my books on the seals of Solomon, things like that. Uh, when it's talking about invoking a spirit, uh, like the. the it's 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 kind of funny how parallel those two things are uh, when you start looking at, you know, things like the Goetia um, and and ritualistic high magic and what we would equate to as Sunday service. Or or daily mass as a Catholic uh, well, I, no, the parallels as, are absolutely there. I think of it this way is as a Catholic as a, a Hindu, a Muslim, whatever you want to pick in any religion, one of the things that, that you believe in and part of that is a larger world. Sure. You believe in things you can't see, all right? If you believe in God, you can't see God, but you nevertheless believe that God is an active presence moving in the world, you know, maybe controlling everything. Even though you believe that on the basis of not having any kind of physical manifestation or proof of that at all. It comes down to a matter of faith. It may come down to 
uh, you know, events may occur which you can attribute to God, the devil, whatever you want. But the the concept in, inherent in any religion is the concept is that there is a wider world than the ones we humans are physically aware of. And therefore, the purpose, if that's what the occult is, if the occult is this hidden word, world, occultism, are all those different beliefs, methods, doctrines, techniques that are used to access that larger world. So, see, it's actually pretty simple. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, even once again, the misunderstanding most people have is occult equals Satanism. And, you know... Um, there are not that many actual Satanists out there that I've been trying to get somebody from the church of Satan here in town to come on the show and talk. Um, but they are not out sacrificing people, folks. Uh, that is, that is not what Satanists avow. It's not what they do at a service. Um, like that, that, that in and of itself is a huge misconception and misunderstanding. Uh, that many, many people have, because once again, all these things get thrown into a catch-all bin and then just get muddled in together. Uh, so let's let's kind of start breaking apart how the occult leads into everyday society and how uh, the two tie together. Well, I guess one of the things that I try to, you know, maybe <laughs> beat people over the head with in the course, or you're going to bring up the same things repeatedly, is that uh, the occult isn't necessarily something that's weird, okay? It's not something that you are unfamiliar with. It doesn't have to be. It's not something which is frightening or, again, diabolical or sinister. It can be all of those things. But the there's a whole set of just... We, we live... Um, in common everyday occurrence and activities are related to this because remember it has to deal with the concept of a hidden world where there are hidden forces and those forces can be accessed and utilized in this one so i'll give you an example one of the things which is um, fairly popular today in certain circles always has been pretty much is if you ever hear people talking about positive affirmations Okay, that you that, you know you 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 give positive sure. you know something as simple and corny as looking at yourself in the mirror in the morning and going you know today I'm, I'm this is going to be the best day ever every day in every way everything is getting better and better for me you know the idea of of affirming what it is you want you know envisioning what you want to happen and then. Repeating and then man, this is the concept, which is the term which is often used, manifesting that reality. All right. Well, my friend, if that's what you are doing, I argue that even if you just wish repeatedly for something to happen, you are manifesting an intention which you are putting out there in one form or another, and you are practicing magic. Absolutely. And that, that, is, that is one of the things that I have said over and over again on this show, uh, especially when you start looking at the modern Christian movement, uh, the the um, folks like Joel Osteen, things like that, where they are talking about, you know, manifesting these good things in your life, uh, stuff like that. Like they are they are quite literally talking the exact same thing that New Agers were talking about back in the 60s and 70s. You know, and and, and like everything else in modern occultism, that leads us straight back to who? Alistair Crowley. Yes. (laughs) And 
What, what Crowley did in a lot of ways is that uh, through his writings, he sort of gave a voice or, or some sort of, you know, Crowley's magic, his definition of magic, everything is just his. This is another thing about occultism is that it's very much a kind of designer shop. I mean, you, you can change things. Well, think of it this way. If, if you in any way sort of believe that by intention and will you can manifest reality, then, of course, you can pretty much make it anything you want it to. But that's the whole goal in this case. Yeah. And that's, that's something else, again, to understand about occultism is that it's the doctrines in it are not there's, – there's nothing really carved in stone. It's one of these things which is based upon intention. And therefore, that intention can seek all types. This is this is arguably the difference between what could be called good magic and bad magic, or you know, black magic. It's yeah. the intention behind it. Yes. So when you're trying to manifest the reality you want, so Crowley, I think, summed it up pretty well. And I'm going to paraphrase him. I, I, I get it. I get it pretty close. His definition of magic, which he thought was this kind of operative force that could be used to influence reality was that magic is the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with will. Now, that's your will. So yeah. it's, it's using willpower. It's using will. It's using intention to cause change. And what it comes down to, in a way, if you think of it that way, is that, and I think it's the right way to think of it, is this concept of magic or this force, this intention and will, is to literally alter reality. And it's a, you know, it's, 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 it's a big question because it, it presumes that reality is alterable. Well, and, and, you know... That is a regular topic of conversation on this show. When you start looking at the the recent, in the last year, uh, Nobel Prize winning quantum entanglement, the fact that two particles, despite distance, can influence each other, uh, you are laying the foundation and the groundwork for these exact same things. Uh, you're, you're in Idaho right now. I'm in Texas. We're by all means of, uh, go ask any physics professor. At, at Idaho State University, we are sharing an electron shell. Um, we are ninety percent empty space. So when you start yeah. when you start figuring that into the equation, magic with a K, as Aleister Crowley says, it does not seem too far off base. Well, I mean, and and in the, my uh, course on the secrets of the occult, one of the things that I make constant mention of. I am not a physicist, but yeah. I will make constant mentions of. Uh, of the various uh, quantum concepts of yeah. physics, uh -huh. which, again, I'm going to grossly oversimplify this, but I think you were referring to it. You know, when you reduce things below the subatomic level, basically, there's no there there. I mean, That's right. It's like nothing. And so the first great magic act, you can think of it this way. The first great manifestation is the whole manifestation by God, whatever, who knows, our collective, whatever it is, somehow out of nothing, yeah. everything is created. And, and agreed upon, Richard. Yeah. That's the big part, is that it's agreed upon. You know, like like time, 
Um, to, to assume the fact that time works the same way on Jupiter is madness. You know, uh, we gave time its boundary as humanity. Uh, time would nowhere near work the same way because g mass and gravity work differently there. Um, so time would work differently there. Like, uh, all of these things are agreed upon as the illusion around us. So, yeah, to to think that we aren't able to matrix Neo some things, so to speak, you know. Well, you know um, the odd thing is, is that I don't remember, and I bet you don't remember either, ever signing off on that. Okay. No. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's there somewhere in the hidden world. Okay, this is what you're going to agree to. This is what reality, never question yeah, these yeah. things, all right? This is, this is true. Never question that, or you're going to screw everything up. Okay, I, I'll sign right here in the dotted line, so let's get bored. Yeah, never uh, open the emergency exit door. No, don't open no. it. Okay, see that button? Don't push it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, but, but we do have to think about this, because, and these things influence reality. I was just, after your show, I texted my brother, and it, I've researched Aleister Crowley. I own three or four original printings of some of his work. You know, I'm pretty familiar with his work. And I especially love um, some of the readings with Lamb. And I guess it had just totally passed my brain that all of the sessions with Lamb took place at Central Park West in in New York. The, the same location that, that the Temple de Zool was at in, in Ghostbusters. Yeah, it's Dirk. I was well, like, you know, what, a, what a nod from, from Dan Aykroyd, who's completely into such things, you know? Yes. Um, and but if it was like, might wow, know that, wow, deep Aykroyd cut. might be the guy. Yeah. I was like, that, that's a deep cut right there. Like it had, it had never even dawned on me the number of times I've read that and just cursorily ran across Central Park West. Um, and not even realize that it happened at the exact same place. Um, but that's just it. These things influence movies. They influence so much of popular culture and things around us to the point of, you know, Aleister Crowley even being on the cover of the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's only one of many people yeah. who were there. But I mean, Crowley's influence on, you know, on on popular music. Uh, popular culture, particularly rock music in the, in the 60s mm. and 70s. It was, uh, in fact, one of the projects I'm a consultant for is a proposed series that will look at that the, the broad influence of the occult, particularly in rock and roll. And, of course, that brings in Crowley. And we're always sort of, you know, the, yeah. the, uh, those of us who've been working on that are sort of amazed. You know, once you start looking – it's pretty much everybody. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's not just Alice Cooper. All right. Uh, or, or people sort of, you know, pretending to do these things, but it was a very strong, pervasive influence. And, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. and, and there's a natural, I mean, occultism connects to everything because if you, if you look at the realm of music, let's just take that for example. And one of the things that, that all musicians, certainly those who make a living off of it, do is that it's dependent very heavily on inspiration right you know you you, you have to be inspired you know um songs symphonies all of those things 
grow out of the inspiration of the, of the artist. And, you know, the Greeks had a way of explaining this, and that was that we're influenced by muses. There are these supernatural beings who come and who pick mortals and, and, and inspire them in, in some way. And whether the muses are any more than just kind of a neat little story or do touch upon some other kind of reality, that's that's the idea. And and, and inspiration in and of itself is impossible to explain. Um, certainly, I think everybody has had it has had some experience in which an idea probably seemed brilliant at the time may not always prove to be just sort of pops into our heads. Yep. Uh, as if it, you know, you'd never thought about it before and, and there it is. And that too is one of these almost in a small way, a kind of miraculous, unexplainable quantum process, which takes place to one degree or another in everyone's life every day. And, and that's, and they get would influence that, that, a, that of the occult and occultism is something which is everyone, every place, every day. Well, and also the fact of occultism ties in so many more things other than just belief. It starts getting into symbology. It starts getting into sacred geometry. It's like so many things cross over with it. And you have to kind of wonder um, because some of that is, of course, echoed in Crowley's work a lot. Some of that is, of course, echoed in rites of high magic, sigils, seals, uh, that that sort of thing. Um, but at the same token, with with uh, with Crowley came not just the high magic side, but also came the birth of the new age side. Um, and, and I've always wondered if the birth and the encouragement of the new age side was there to help subtract from the actual factual esoteric side of Crowley's high magic and, and well, the, the ideas of, you know, sacred geometry going, going back to Kabbalism, um, things like that, that, that trace back to numerous because he drew from numerous uh, cultural yeah. backgrounds and and cultural magics to well to produce you remember mentioning the, the the idea of occultism constantly reinventing itself it's one of these things which is kind of that everyone invents yeah. in a slightly different way you know and uh you could say it's like comedy you know you you steal from, from other comedians oh, you you appropriate things you hear a good joke you 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 take it and you bring it in and it's um I, you know, if uh, give you, but but one example of that is that a very important figure in 19th century, in the popularization of occultism, of what you can also call mysticism, but the mm -hmm. the, the the popularization of occultism and mysticism in the 19th century was by one woman, uh, in particular, uh, or let's say by this one woman, uh, uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Uh, she was a Russian mystic had an interest in metaphysics and all assorted weirdness from an early age, um, and then later founded a, a movement called Theosophy, which yeah. was basically, and that's really in many ways the kind of root of the modern New Age, which is this kind of blending 
of Western magic and esotericism that is essentially European magic with with Asian magic, particularly with that of Hinduism and Buddhism. And that's what Blavatsky did. She took Western magic. She mixed it with Tibetan and, and uh, Buddhist uh, mysticism. And voila, the age of the mystical guru was born. And it became a kind of it, it, a kind of cosmopolitan occultism. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, one of the other things that, that Helena Blavatsky was, in addition to being an avowed medium spiritual, you know, is being the, the chosen of the ascended masters, our ethereal or spiritual overlords, who I don't know, are sitting lotus style floating in a cavern under the Himalayas or wherever you want to imagine them to be. But that's a good way to imagine them. And they're guiding the spiritual evolution of humanity. And they picked Helena Blavatsky in the way they pick other people in order to be their mouthpieces. Sound familiar? Yeah. All right. This is the way this this whole sort of game seems to work. Uh, but the other thing about her is that she was also a fraud. I mean, she was a liar. She lied about things. It's easy to establish that. She made things up. She faked things. Uh, and towards the end of her life, one of the scandals that emerged was an ex carried out by the Society for Psychical Research, which was a society in London that appointed itself, it's true, who else, appointed itself to, a study, to, to study what we would now call psychic phenomenon and, and try to subject it to some kind of rational analysis. They were not debunkers. They were not hostile, but they also weren't suckers. And what happened is that it wasn't with great difficulty of proving that, you know, Helena Blavatsky, which isn't to argue that she didn't receive channeled messages from somebody, but in some cases, she made that stuff up. And this is the pattern which you will find when you begin to look, you'll even find it with Crowley. Mm. Uh, and I think that Crowley, my opinion, for whatever that's worth, is that he was very sincere about some of the things he believed, but I don't think he was necessarily as quite as certain about exactly why he believed them. I mean, he was he was mystified by his own experiences. And uh, yes, yeah, and, and in part, he's trying to to figure out how all of this stuff works. And he's proposing different models for it. But Crowley himself wasn't beyond faking it if he had to. Yeah. And that, I think, is one of the things that's easy if you look around today and look at the people who are often referred to as cult leaders. And first of all, you're going to find a lot of them are selling some version of Blavatsky's theosophy. Yep. Really, that that idea, it, she could sue any number of people for plagiarism of simply ripping off her ideas. But that's what that's that's how the game is played. You take it, you run with it, and um, so the, these ideas are are constantly being recycled. And I suppose to carry that, you, you begin with Blavatsky. And again, if you're looking around on Amazon Prime, I think it's there. It could be on Netflix. Mm -hmm. I can never keep these straight. There is a series currently running, which is called Love Has Won, the Mother God Cult. I think it's only like three episodes. Yep. No, me, my wife and I just watched that. Okay. Um, and, and 
If you look, listen closely, you figure out that what the the key, the woman who proclaims herself God, is essentially selling is this kind of version of Blavatsky's theosophy, with certain names changed. So while Helena Blavatsky claimed to be getting messages channeled to her from the ascended masters like Master Moria and Hoot Kumi and others, uh, Amy, <laughs> which I think is the name of this person, yes. claimed to be getting these messages from the ghost of Robin Williams. Uh, yeah, from the ghost, of, it was it was quite literally a panoply. Yes, a panoply. It was like the the cover of Sergeant Pepper's. Yes, the number exactly. the number of spirits that that came to her, and you know, uh, and, and so, um, it's it's very interesting because there were, and don't get me wrong, like I I I will attest till the day that I die, Doctor Professor, that I had more. I have had more than one full on in the presence of what I know to be my creator God experiences in my life. Um, And those, those are the things that have steeled me and moved me to do things like this and have these conversations. Um, They, they are the things that have moved me forward in life. Uh, However, I, I cannot say it's ever gotten to the point where I claim to be the one who was suffering for the world's ills um, that I claim to be using for the suffrage of the world's ills. Um, and that that's my medicine. Like these are the things that eventually led to her death. No spoiler yeah. alerts, folks. I'm sorry um, for any spoiler alerts, but yeah, like uh, um, I mean, her primary spiritual medicine is vodka. Yeah, it was uh, that uh, that and colloidal silver by the leaders. Yes. Um, All right. So, uh, yeah, it was it was um, and granted, you know, I've I've, I've, like I told you before the show, watched numerous things about cults lately. I don't know why uh, I've followed uh, a huge professional in the world of like pulling people out of cults for years. And I've been wanting to get them on. But um, the. The mentality fascinates me, I guess, because at heart, I I am a true believer's true believer. I'm looking. I am looking for the evidence that proves to me otherwise. You know, um, to to the point where, uh, I I say, oh no no, like, uh, faith implies belief. I don't believe. I know. Like yes, and those and that's a very important distinction to make which is, again, often confused, yeah. which is that, you know, what you believe, you don't know. Yeah. Because then you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't have to believe it. Yeah. And yeah. generally what we go by, though, I mean, I, I'd say, you know, 90% of those things that influence our actions are the things that we believe. And very often we believe things because we've just been told to believe them. So they become part of our operative reality. Yeah. And it's um, and I, I want to make it clear to people listening here that I'm, I'm not crowding up by saying is that I didn't just say that all occultism and along with that, of course, religion, which is a component of occultism, that it's all fakery. No, right? no, that that's not. But it is an inextricable matrix of reality and fraud at the same time. 
Yes. These things are always being introduced. There is a, and again, you know, not, not to pick on, um, you know, mother God, Amy, but I think she's a pretty good target for that because it's, it's the most recent, most accessible, you know, but but it also is, this was my personal opinion is that as, even as a con, all right. Yeah. It's just, it's just bad. (laughs) I mean, I kept thinking, you know, this is just, this is it completely, it's just a hodgepodge of of different sorts of ideas. I don't even know what they were selling, and I'm not even sure they knew what they were selling. But nevertheless, the the interesting thing is that it didn't sell a lot, but it sold. I mean, one of the things you can, there were were people who devoted their entire lives to her. Yes. And it's... um, uh, I mean, I, this is this is the the unpleasant part of this, but it's one of those realities as human beings we have to confront is that we're we're kind of gullible, okay? And I don't exempt myself from that. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, yeah, I just, I, you know, I just, the, the things I, I get fooled by the things I get fooled by. But to ever assume that you're just too clever to ever get taken in by the con yeah. is, is a mistake in this case. So I wouldn't fall for her con, but I would sort of say I wouldn't fall. For, for something else. But it is this, and it comes down to this idea that, that in this wider world, that there are different possibly contending forces at work. So here's another sort of basic concept that I go over again in the course. Okay, there's, there's this hidden world. And the thing about this hidden world, like the one we live in, is that it's inhabited. And not by us. But there's something else, okay? There's there's something else which is, and you know, I I think this is um, a pretty common human idea. One of the things that human beings figured out in some way pretty early is that we're not really alone. That there are other things that are beings or sentient. You know, there's there's another will which is operating. Think of it this way. We have our individual wills. And of course, what the the basic concept of, of occultism teaches is, is that, or it, it argues, is that through the focusing of that will, through our wills, we can influence our reality individually and collectively. Yes. Now, on the other hand, there's now this larger invisible world in, inhabited by apparently invisible beings who also have their will and with which we willingly or unknowingly, in both those cases, interact. And the question often comes down, one of the mysteries here is what do they want? You? <laughs> they want you? That's the that's pretty much the answer. And, and you know, we, we recently just had a discussion. Uh, it was Halloween night. It was episode 100. But uh, it was demon seeding these the concept of these demons that require a, a physical host to carry forth um, yeah. and and exorcism. Those were the two topics with two different guests. And. You know, the the thing that we say regularly, and once again, I, I regularly espouse on the show, Professor, I, I am a recovering Catholic. I, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say I'm a lapsed Catholic because that would say like, oh, I still go to mass every three, four weeks, something like that. No, no. 
um, whenever somebody in my family's like, Hey, let's go to church. I'll gladly go with them. Um, but, uh, I, I, I don't need the edifice and the people to commune with my greater creator. However, the one thing I will always say is you want to be agnostic. You want to be, you know, uh, atheist. That's, that is perfectly fine. That is perfectly understandable. Just, just remember they believe in you. Whether you believe in them or not is not the point. The point is that, oh, they're out there and they believe in you. Um, and yes, you, you brought up a very interesting point. The idea of consent, uh, even the idea of consent whenever, whenever you were doing something, uh, just for fun, just for play. What have you? Uh, how do we know that there is not an entity there that is hijacking that trope in your mind that you would be okay with, that would give your consent? Uh, much, much like in the movie The Exorcist, when, when Captain Howdy, uh, the spirit possesses Regan, he never reveals like, hey, oh, hey, nice to meet you, Regan. My name's the demon Pazuzu. I'm the African god of the West Wind. I'm here to possess your soul now. Uh, that cool? That, that's not how that happened. Um, she went to play with something and the spirit was like, oh, I see you're playful. What would you be okay with? Oh, something named Captain Howdy. Okay. Um, and that began the relationship. So it's interesting to see that and to once again see these, these ideas that are there and taught in occultism, taught in numerous places, literally making their way onto the screen. Like it, it, it wasn't even obscured or hidden, uh, which I think, I think was a big part of the Catholic Church's problem with the movie and the film to begin with was that so much of the actual right was revealed. So much of the words from the actual right were revealed. Um, but also those, those rules that are there were revealed, you know, and, and that the rules of participating or not participating with what's coming from the other side, because it's there. Well, you know, you can even take something. Um, there are the sort of magical instruction, but grimoires. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or in terms of black men, which are often uh, ways to, to summon Various entities of one kind, call them demons, call them what you will. Never, this is the way in which you, this is the way you establish. But the one of the things that any grimoire makes quite clear, if you're paying attention, is that this is dangerous. Okay. At no point of this that you, you proceed at your own risk. Uh, that's certainly something that Alistair Crowley understood very well and always would warn people about is that you proceed at your own risk. Um, for instance, there's a, you know, one of Crowley's later somewhat famous, infamous followers was an American rocket scientist and occultist named Jack Parsons, John Whiteside Parsons. I think probably a lot of listeners will know something of his story. And yes, Parsons for a time was connected to L. Ron Hubbard and yep. uh, 1946. The two of them went off into the Mojave Desert or around Pasadena and they conducted a series of rituals called the Babylon Working, which was designed to summon an entity, the spirit of the goddess Babylon, which was 
mostly sort of Crowley's invention, and and incarnate her in human form. And Parsons wrote to Crowley about what he and Hubbard were, were doing. And Crowley's response to this was not positive. He did not say, hey, that's great. You guys should really get – no, his idea was that hey, these people are idiots. You should not do this. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, and Crowley's whole reaction is he was really quite concerned about what it was, uh, that what he thought people who did not know what they were getting into was, was a part of that. Um, so Crowley himself would be the first to acknowledge that this was a, 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 a very tricky thing to become involved in. And he had been involved throughout his career in various invocations of different, of different entities, uh, and, and took that type of thing pretty seriously. But it's the, you know, part of what these things that rather than to give a different, what these these other things do in very simple form is that they're constantly messing with us. Yes. In various forms, and this is it. They have a clear advantage in that they would appear to be more aware of us than we are of them. We tend not to be aware of them unless they want us to be, whereas they seem to have a much better idea as to what's going on. They have some kind of peculiar interest in us that in some way we seem to be necessary to help them accomplish certain ends. Their motivations are often obscure. And and I'm talking about, you know, you've got this spectrum of – these beings. You've got demons and you've got angels. And here again, I would want you to tell me exactly how you tell the difference between the two. It's 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 not extraordinarily easy. Um, and and you know, a lot of people. I, uh, demons to me are are precursory. Uh, they they were there pre angel. Uh, there are fallen angels, most definitely, but demons are something else entirely than a fallen angel. Um, when you're talking fallen angel, you're talking about like uh, the the watchers and things like that. Also, that you know, uh, bred with man and created the Nephilim. Um, that kind well, of see, what, stuff. Well, see, what so. we're doing here is that we're giving all kinds of names to these things, and this is sure. this is one of the things that. Humans love to do. We have to, we always give a name to everything. Every tree has a name. Okay, every animal has it. We name things. That's what. That's our. It that's gives our, us the domain. That's our shtick. All right. But it also creates the the kind of I think false illusion in some cases that by naming something you control it exactly. And and to give you to give you an idea how that can be applied elsewhere. You know, if you look into the realm of psychiatry and mental illness, you have the ever-expanding compendium of all the various illnesses and disorders that exist. Okay, find any kind of you know odd human behavior was doomed to be odd, may not be, and there's some sort of name for it. And but that's what we do. We, we you know the people are behaving oddly, and they seem to do so in these particular patterns. So we'll call that a disorder. And, and we'll call it borderline personality disorder, which to me describes nothing. All right. It's, it's a name. But we've, what we've done is we've given a name to the demon. And somehow by naming it, it gives us a kind of control over it. Well, and 
mostly an illusion, I think, but there you go. Well, and, and, you know, whenever I used to teach religion and spirituality and specifically spend the first month of classes on the book of book of Genesis, uh, because if you don't, especially if you don't understand those two stories occurring concur- concurrently uh, and and how they break down and the different cultures that they come from. Quite literally, that is the reason why in the one story, Adam is naming the animals. Uh, because according to that tradition, when you name something, you have dominion over it. You you are now the one in control. That's the whole reason for a woman taking a man's name and, you know, things like that. Uh, that's where all those things trace back to is is the root of, yes, us wanting the control over something that is a totally unknown quantitative to us. Yeah, um, but it, it, it gives the world a kind of definition. Yeah. Well, you know, but you go back to these, you know, whether you're talking about demons or angels, um, whatever their differences might be in, in origin, they can do a perfectly good job of imitating. Yes. <laughs> I mean, from our perspective, we really can't tell particularly well. I mean, we don't seem to be, and, and it's just, um, well, you know, well, if you, if you look at most stories about angelic encounters, if you look at everything from, well, Joan of Arc, you know, well, the, why was it an angel? Because he told, they told her they were, they were saints. Right. Yeah. And, you know, she believed him being sent a peasant girl that she was. Um, if you if you look at the, you know, the the miracle of Fatima, the, the Portuguese children who saw the Virgin Mary and others saying one thing to notice is that often this doesn't work out well for yeah. the humans. Yeah. Okay? And early death is usually the usually results in the death of the person who is connected to it. And it's a the death or the madness of. Or, or the madness, um, but that's what that, and that maybe is one of the most basic ideas of a cautionary tale in dealing with what in, in the course I just referred to. There's an episode called "The Others," and I try to go all the different sort of versions of these things that have been around. So when you mess around with the others, you never know exactly what you're dealing with, and you never know exactly what their motivations are, and pretty much they'll tell you anything. My God, I need to have you on so many supernatural panels, Richard. I'm I'm not even joking. Sincerely, this is one of the things that we discuss regularly on the show when it comes to cryptozoology, cryptids, specifically Bigfoot. Um, and experiences out in the woods where it's like Bigfoot walked through a portal. Okay. I'm not saying that the experience that you had didn't happen, but um, is that the hominid species known as Bigfoot that I firmly believe exists in the woods of North America? Um, there's much, much evidence to point that way. However, when you start talking about portals and other things and glowing eyes and that kind of stuff, could it be one of these, quote, others that once again is hijacking a trope in our mind that Hey, you're out Sasquatch hunting. You'd be perfectly open to seeing this. And now that is you being open to that experience is now your consent into their system. Yeah. It's a, um, 
You were talking about it scenes from movies that deal with occult themes, and mm-hmm. that's you know that's the in, that's the feeding back into this into popular culture. Yeah. But there's a uh, there was a film that was done a few years ago called The Witch, which is set in New England in the 17th century. I love that which, movie. Which, which, you know, people either love it or hate it for some reason. My but wife I, uh, loves it. I kind it. of like she it. She hates it. I loved it. I um, loved it because of the there end is, and, and there the is reveal. This, Oh, the, the, the scene. Yes. At the very end, the witches are speaking in Nokia. So, OK. Yes. So if you're, you know, if you're going to get geeky about these things, you get into that. But there's a scene towards the end where Tamison, the, the, the girl, the, the, our protagonist, our, our heroine, I guess, is eventually all of her family is dead. But, you know, she's she's had some difficulties and, and her family's all died in very unpleasant forms. And she's talking to Black Philip, which is this huge black goat that we yeah. kind of yeah. guessed all along might possibly be the incarnation because <laughs> it's been talking to her little siblings. So at one point she tries, you know, and I think in desperation, she goes, well, are you going to you know, speak to me, you know, and and, and something and. And eventually, the goat off screen does say something, but it asks this very basic and important question: "What dost thou want?" Yeah. All right, and that's and that's very often the the, the question. Well, the, the, here's another sort of concept in the in the con in the idea of a cult. The occult universe and occult physics. The, the physics of occultism is the same as with everything else. There is cause and effect. And the simpler way to think of it is that you don't get something for nothing. That's right. Nothing is given away for free. So when Black Philip the devil asked Thomason, what do you want? It's the basic question. And then he, he names off some things, you know. Yes. Like you know, pretty dresses, travel to live deliciously is is one of those. And 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 of course her response to the to what do you want is that what can you offer? Okay. And when it gets down to this idea of acceptance, what has been made there without signing anything is a pact. We are now negotiating. What do you want? Well, what can you offer? And then there, of course, is what is the price? The price is her soul, which is sold through the completion of the contract of making her signature in the book. But it all begins with this process and negotiation. And yeah. that's, that's one of the things that can, you can use that. One can, you know, arguably, you can use the mechanisms of, of occult practice. You can use mental facilities, rituals, which are basically a way of, of focusing your intention. That's all rituals do. They're, they're a form of self-hypnotism or group hypnotism. Yes. They focus intention because everything in this but, it, but it's true. But, but then again, if you look at it, it's true for everything in life. It's it's not just a goal. Everything is about intention. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I a prime example um, I, I would give people is I'm I'm a deadhead. Love the Grateful Dead. Um, there is a different vibe going on at a show like that or Fish, um, Dave Matthews, because everybody is there with the intent of having that experience. Um, and it's, it's different. It's different than other bands because 
there is not the unified field of thinking uh, when it comes to it. And it's pretty remarkable to to see it in action, to see those things, uh, to see that mass swath take over. Um, because yeah, I mean, when, when you start looking at things, the whole reason I got into this, uh, is because of dancing, you know, um, along with chanting, things like that, the rhythmic moving of your body can do the exact same thing and change, change quite literally the brain waves in your brain. Mm. Uh, that is how Sufi mystics and, and whirling dervishes got got to their points of ecstasy and and and, and voodoo priests absolutely absolutely it is getting to a point of tantric dance uh where the endorphins in your body change and that changes the brain waves in your actual brain it's it's remarkable how these things all tie together um and and once again i think that that the tie together of them professor is the occult that's the occult that uh, whatever whatever uh conspiracy hypotheses you ascribe to out there folks um that's the occult that they the the big capital t-h-e-y are trying to hide from us is that all these things are connected uh and and many ancient cultures understood that you know um and and we have we have come to a point of huge misidentification and uh, misunderstanding. And there are many people who are more than willing to let that keep going on because it serves the greater good uh, that they see. So um, I want to thank you for this amazing course, Richard. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it. And, it I, and of course, I hope other people do, too. It is one of those like I love your secret societies course. Uh, you have you really do have a very uh, we were speaking about it before the show. Um, there's something special when you get to stand in front of a classroom and you get to break down topics like this and you get to talk about them at the end of a class in a 10, 15 minute Q&A format with with uh, people that you're teaching. Um but you you really do have an amazing way of tying all of these uh, literally just um, massively deep and thick thick topics together in in such a common sense way. I mean, I've had some amazing professors in my time. I am so entirely glad that I have run across your courses, man. You are by far one of my favorite professors I've ever had. Um, well, okay. Well, thank you. Not even that joking. is high praise indeed, it and is. I thank you very much for, for that. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah. I, I think we were talking before we started that you know that there's an element of, of performance even in something like like a lecture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now there is a difference between that and and what I do in in, in the great courses because in the great courses. I have written a script and my and I and my editor have gone over that script and there have been changes, you know, because every episode you've got about 30 minutes. <laughs> OK, and that's and that's what you have to work with. Sure. sure. But so, and, that, and that, but that becomes and that's an interesting challenge. And it's a challenge I appreciate because one of the things that have that having a limit either in the number, you know, you can explain this in 5000 words, you can explain it in 30 minutes, you can do it. But. 
And then the challenge is to do that. And that's where you have to decide what are the things, you know, what what can I best spend uh, my time on discussing, you know, how much detail do we need, we want to go to into this and that. And, and all of this is a process of, of helping you re- refine refine the ideas, but it's the connections between all of these things that I think that I find the, the most fascinating. Same. And it's, um, you know, I think another thing I mentioned, you know, even in terms of common rituals that we go through, well, we're coming up on Christmas, right? Yep. All right. Christmas is for, it's, it's a set of rituals. It's these things that people do all the time. And and those rituals, even if you don't know what the meaning is, you're still, still sort of participating in this. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, um, you know, I mean, one of the things I can remember, I mentioned in this, uh, is it was being in high school and, and having the obligatory pep rally. Yes. All right. Yeah. Where everybody gets together, you know. Somehow you're going to be taken out of class. We're going to come here. We're going to spend the extra time. We're all going to do, and we're going to watch people dance around in animal totem costumes, and we're going to chant to the death of our enemies. We're going to, we're going to focus our intention to do what win and to defeat our foe. Uh, you know, we'll even you know in some cases we'll carry out you know ritual incinerations of you know imaginary cardboard coffins of our enemy. That again. You know, it's it's maybe the kind of low end of the occult speed spectrum in terms of, but that is a ritual. Absolutely. It has intention, and it is meant to change reality. It is meant to mentally bring you all together for common purpose. To manifest the future you wish to see. That's right. That's right. And and to hype your warriors into into a state of frenzy, what have you, and. Uh, you know, even I, I used to spend a whole point this time of year going over the history because, uh, I mean, I'm I'm Roman Catholic. We 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 loved nothing more than whenever we came in somewhere going, oh, you have a you have a ritual and holiday that time of year. Well, so do we look <laughs> at that. It's very, very similar to yours. Um, you should just be Catholic. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the whole concept of a Christmas tree, tinsel. Everything else that is that is utterly pagan rooted. No, I mean there's nothing. Okay, there's there's nothing biblical about it. Yes, no. it's just the uh, you know, and it's pretty much true with the Easter Bunny and the rest of it. But you know, people yeah. like doing those things because they're reassuring and and they're fun and they appear to be harmless. And you know, they aren't manifesting. Okay, you know, we'll, we'll all sort of manifest you know love and brotherhood for for the Christmas season, and it's all about gift giving and greed. That that as well, but um, but you know, we'll we'll we'll, we'll participate holidays, everybody. in the, in these these kinds of rituals. Um, well, and uh, well, and you know, here's the thing: uh, I I don't not participate in Christmas, but I do tell my family like, hey, please uh, don't forget, Dalbus has like three, four different Christmases that he goes to. He doesn't need eight eight presents from each of you, you know. Uh, maybe an educational gift and a toy like, you know, something along those lines, because, yes, uh, I am not down with the commercialization of it. I am I am all about uh, celebrating Chris Hanukwanzadon, whatever it is this time of year that is your celebration du jour. 
go out, celebrate it, because, yes, it is there as an intended ritual to bring humanity together in a different way. Um, and, and it's one of those that I think as far as Aragorn, things like that, I don't think you could get better than the holiday season. You know, as far as I think Santa may be one of the best golems ever. And we'll we'll have to have you on again to discuss to discuss quite literally the history of the golem and, yes, and that story, uh, because there's yes, Santa's whole sort of dubious, dubious origins, possibly <laughs> as a devil. Right. Anyway. Thank you, Coca-Cola. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they they changed that they changed that completely from Absolutely. his child's uh, uh, child stealing earlier elephant demonic self. So <laughs> Yeah, him, uh, him and his buddy Krampus. Uh but see if you don't like them in one way, they'll just appear in another way. That's right. Give so it a you, give it a little break and the, we'll reinvent it. The Santa that you want to have. That's right. You know, I can you know talking about high school pep rallies though, I and this probably has something to do with just my you know, I don't know, perverse sociopathy or whatever it is. But I can remember. See, I didn't like being forced into these things. Uh, All right. I always uh, felt that I was being dragooned into a war, which I didn't want to fight. Right. I don't I don't I didn't get it. I didn't get why this. And so I can remember setting you these things. You know, you're, you're in the midst of this whole sort of crowd of people who are now working themselves up into some sort of endorphin frenzy. And, they, and I just decided I was going to resist that. Okay? OK, I was not I was not I was going to reject the hive mind and I was going to sit here and I was not. You know, I'm sitting here. I'm saying everything, but I am I am inwardly not participating. Yeah, I'm not signing on. Uh, and it's a. You know, I, I'd say that that's kind of a stupid attitude in a lot of ways. I would say in other cases that has served me quite well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's, you know, it, it, is, uh, it helps in some cases of, you know, there are cases really, and I think we all know this, where resisting the hive mind is the smartest thing that you can do. Absolutely. In other instances where it's like, you know, sometimes the go along to get along ain't, ain't so horrible. Um, and can be the best thing to do in the long run. Uh, and I, I literally just had my 30th high school reunion, uh, professor. And, and I got to, I got to help plan it. Ah. I didn't get to attend it, but I got to help plan it. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> but during that planning part, there was somebody who was like, well, I mean, we graduated. I think I graduated with like 430 students. Yeah. Something like that. Like it was a big class, you know, and, and somebody in the meeting was like, Oh, you know, well, we've only got like, I think it was like a hundred people that, that RSVP'd and they were like, you know, I hope we get more. And I was like, Hey man, like you're shooting a quarter of people 30 years later. I'd say that's a pretty good percentage if that's the case. And you know, you got to remember that. Not everybody went to a pep rally on a Friday. Those are probably exactly the people you can expect to see at the high school reunion. <laughs> Not the ones that, that, you know, just like went limp and went with the crowd because it was easier than fighting through the crowd to get out of the school. <laughs> they just they just went with the flow and went anyway, you know. Um, so, yeah, we we as a society uh, tend to tend to look away from things like that. We tend to either, either fall in full force or 
run away, hands in the air. Um, it's interesting to see that. And we'll explore that in so much more uh, detail next time we have you on. Thank you so much again for the time. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, I yeah. assure well, you. It's my pleasure. It yeah. will it will not be as, as far in the distance next time uh, because I want to keep talking about the occult, everything else. This is a fantastic series. So oh, we won't um, wear that topic out anytime soon. Absolutely. I, can, I can guarantee you that. Well, uh, hold the line real quick while we close things out with the audience, Professor Spence, while you are online checking out all of the amazing classes from Richard B. Spence over at Wondrium by The Great Courses, which, by the way, folks, you can find on Amazon. Uh, if you're an Amazon Prime member, just look up Great Courses. Just look up Richard B. Spence. You'll find all these things. Um, while you're online checking all of that out, make sure to stop on by CuriousRealm.com. That is where you can like, follow, subscribe. That's where you can uh, find all the books and courses from our guests Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in, everybody. It is your open hearts, open minds that make the conversation, and it is the conversation that moves humanity forward. So remember, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and stay curious. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Curious Realm. Stay tuned for more guests, forbidden topics, and hidden truths. Download the official Curious Realm app and view the Knowledge Vault on our website, CuriousRealm.com. Follow us on social media by searching Curious Realm. Curious Realm is available on your favorite podcast services, as well as YouTube, Roku, Amazon Fire, and Apple TV through the APR TV app, available on all app markets. Thanks for listening. Stay curious and remember, the other side is always watching.